Eat Drink DFW from the Dallas Morning News is made possible by Central Market. Hey, North Texas food fans, welcome to Eat Drink DFW from the Dallas Morning News. Each week, we dish on the local restaurant scene, food and drink trends, cooking and shopping tips, and unpack everything that makes North Texas one of the most vibrant, diverse, and ambitious food scenes in the country. I'm your host, food editor Aaron Bookie, and today we're talking about why reservations are so hard to get in Dallas right now. We're also deep into soup season here in North Texas, so we talk about the best bowls you can find around town. Then we talk with Chef Vivian Howard of North Carolina about her new vending machine concept and what a flavor hero is. It all gets started right after this. Central Market is really into food, like fish flown in so fresh it still has jet lag into food. Our sourdough starter has been around since grunge was a thing into food. We're talking more prime cuts than a greatest hits album into food. Central Market is really into food. If you are too, then we're the HQ for you. Whether you're a make every recipe in the cookbook foodie or a my favorite recipe is reheat type who just digs the delectable, no place makes every day more delicious like Central Market. Really into food. Shop now at centralmarket.com. Welcome back, everyone. Be sure to go to dallasnews.com slash food after this for information on our show and helpful links. We also want to hear about your favorite dishes and cooking hacks, so please share with us at eatdrink at dallasnews.com. Later on, we'll be talking with chef and Emmy-winning TV host Vivian Howard. But right now, I'm joined by food writers Sarah Blaskovich and Claire Baller, Nick Rallo today, and our producer Julie Fisk. Claire, you had a great story this week about how reservations are harder to get in Dallas now than probably they've ever been. I think anyone who has dined out uh, in the past year or so has experienced this probably that it seems as though it is more necessary to have a reservation to dine out, especially if we're talking about weekend dining right? and that there are restaurants that it feels almost impossible to get a reservation at. From what I found, it feels that way because it is that way. Since the pandemic, you have a few things that have happened. Once cases started dropping, COVID cases started dropping and uh, COVID vaccines became more widely available, you had this rush for people to go back to in-person dining. People were kind of sick of the whole to-go thing and, and ready to be back sitting at tables and restaurants. That kind of kicked off this change. But what we're seeing now happening in Dallas is not at all related to that. And there are a few reasons for this. You have the things that drive demand for reservations that have always been the case, like convenience. Um, People are able to plan around them and and book babysitters and things like that. But now what we have increasing is this matter of social currency, where dinner reservations at specific restaurants have become a signal of status, of being in the know with what's cool. And social media has driven a lot of that. So that is really changing the demand for restaurant reservations. And this is playing out in really interesting ways around the country of people starting to barter and sell restaurant reservations on kind of these black market sites for uh, just exorbitant amounts of money because it's people want to be seen at these restaurants and they want to have that experience of dining there. The significant driving factor for this is a matter of restaurant behavior, not consumer behavior. Restaurants are really encouraging reservations now more than they ever have. And it's not hard to see why, right? If you know how many people are going to be dining in your restaurant, that's way easier to plan for. It's easier to staff for, which is really important since staffing shortages are still an issue. Mm -hmm. It's a way for restaurants to help their bottom line during a really, really difficult economic time. 
So this is really shifting because restaurants want it and need it to shift. They need to know who's going to be dining at the restaurant and when. Yeah, I loved in your story how Jennifer Uger from Lucia kept saying, we have to buy wine. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it was like <laughs> yeah. we really have to plan mm-hmm. for how many people we're going to have. Have they been seeing a lot of cancellations? Because I definitely have known people who will book mm-hmm. five different restaurants yep. and then cancel at the last minute. So that's obviously a downside of a stronger push for reservations is Mm -hmm. then you have more cancellations. But restaurants are being proactive about this in being very thoughtful about the way that they structure their booking systems. So there are many that are taking the approach of releasing reservations in batches, either at two-week increments or usually what we see more typically is 30-day increments. Mm -hmm. That creates an environment that I think makes people a bit more serious and more thoughtful when they are booking reservations because those book up quickly. If you snag a reservation at one of these restaurants that is is hard to get in at, like Lucia or Shoyo or Tatsu, you're probably going to be pretty committed to that reservation and make sure you go because you don't know when you'll be able to snag a table again. Um, And some require you to even prepay for the whole meal ahead of time. Yep. That, of course, makes people be more thoughtful as well before they cancel the (laughs) reservation. And even ones that don't require full prepayment, a lot have cancellation policies where you could be charged $50 per person if you cancel, you know, after a certain time frame. I think it's just interesting to me that getting a certain restaurant reservation, like you mentioned, is a is a status thing, Claire. It's not just getting the reservation. It's then paying for that meal. Yeah. You know, the places that you listed, you wrote a story about the four places where it's hard to get a reservation. I've been to all of them and spent so much money mm-hmm. at all of these places. And people out there should know this is not like work money. This is my money taking my family to go eat at these places. And if anybody is listening and you feel like eating in restaurants has never been more expensive, you're exactly right. So you get the reservation and then, you know, you're still three, $400 in for a couple to have a really fine meal. And that's why I think these reservations are such a big deal is they want you to say, I'm coming and I'll really be there that you can pay and want to pay. I think it's just important to me that we remember that, um, Ooh, these are special occasion spots for a lot of us. Yeah, for sure. I think it's important for people to realize that it's not impossible to still be spontaneous about dining out. Um, There are plenty of mid-tier restaurants here in Dallas that are great and that you can usually get a somewhat last minute reservation at. And then even at some of these popular spots, you can get on wait lists and they will notify you when someone cancels and a spot opens. And then there are some like Lucia, they save a few seats at their bar every night for walk-ins because they they really value people being able to pop in off the street. And as a consumer and diner, I actually kind of like this trend because I like to know it's a sure thing for me. You know, like I don't Mm -hmm. like to go to a restaurant and just like put my name on a list and wait for an hour. Wait. Yeah. And these days, two hours like that kind of used to be the thing in Dallas. Restaurants don't really want that. That's not ideal for them to have you come. And your main memory was waiting for two hours to be able to sit down. Right. Because then that immediately means that they have a lot to make up for and a lot to prove with that time that you're sitting down in that seat. What the reservations say about, you were talking about status symbol. I was like, oh no, what do my reservations say about me? <laughs> because they would read something like, I booked a parking spot in front of Hello Dumpling where I sad ate dumplings in the parking lot. Yeah. It's not good for some I have us. a date with my car and yeah. six dumplings. My status is low. <laughs> 
So speaking of pandemic restaurant changes, we've seen a lot of restaurants really leaning into to-go models and vending machines. And we'll be talking with um, North Carolina chef Vivian Howard later, who has started this new project called Viv's Fridges, where you can basically get a whole top chef meal ready to go. Some of those things we've seen around Dallas. Sarah, I know you had a couple of things you saw. I remember the day the Sprinkles Cupcake ATM opened. That's what they call it. I was there. Um, and I videoed myself, I want to say, like, boop, 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 boop. You know, it's like, I, I want the red velvet cupcake because that's the one we all want. Isn't that the one we all want at Sprinkles? Mm, it's yeah, the best sure. one. You put in your credit card and then it magically delivered me like a quite fresh red velvet cupcake. And I liked that. And then there are fridges at Laduni mm-hmm. on McKinney Avenue and then also at the Laduni at the AT&T Food Hall. And you swipe your credit card and you can get these little jars of like cheesecakes or flan. And I have to say out loud that Laduni's flan in this little jar is so incredible. With those in particular, they're cold because they're fridges. I guess that's what a fridge does. But there are some of these, um, I don't know, I call them hot boxes. But (laughs) is that a bad term? A hot box just brings memories to some people. Okay. That's what I thought. I'm like, what amazing. So we all know. But there's that (laughs) Brooklyn dumpling shop that is coming to Dallas soon. There's no human interaction there either. Like you order off the app or you can even go in and order it off their little boop, boop, boop computer but then the food just shows up in this little hot box and for you, lack of a better term and you take i think there is a better term but i don't know what it is um i like it so it's very much a to-go situation but with no people see vivian howard she's taking it like a step further where she's doing an entire meal like you get an appetizer you get like a full entree and then dessert she even has like their 10 layer cake and it's all stuff that she's made at chef and the farmer and like i wish she would do her own fridges here because i'm a huge vivian howard fan i watch like every episode of Chef and the Farmer and Somewhere South. But she doesn't want to do that. What she wants to do is sell these fridges to other restaurateurs in town or like in Texas, all across the country, really. And then so they would be the ones putting in entire meals. So like when you think about, okay, what's your favorite thing to get at um, Lucia? You would have the entire thing ready to go and you would just get it out of this refrigerator. So I guess my question is like, would you guys do this? And if so, like what chefs would you like to see taking this forward in Texas? Well, I think a lot of restaurants here have done something similar, just not in a separate fridge concept. Like Lucia does. Yeah, they exactly. Do that. Yeah. Lucia Lucia does um, a lot of Sunday night dinners, which I I did a few of those during the pandemic. And I probably would get it more if there was like a fridge like right down the street from my house. Yeah. I think that's part of it is that she started off in this teeny tiny town in North Carolina. And so then it's like, well, people outside of the city want to to eat this food. So you're right. Like if there was something where you could just cruise by and get a Lucia dinner. I do wonder what the demand for this kind of thing will be like even just a year, two years from now as we get further out from 2020 and everything that that upended like are people going to want these alternative ways of dining as much as they've wanted in in the recent past I don't know Uh, I see things that seem to indicate no but then also you look at uh, restaurant statistics on their to-go orders and they're pretty much sustaining still so Maybe that kind of thing is here to stay. I know for me personally, like if I'm going to drop some money for food, I want it to be hot and I, I want to be uh, getting the table service that goes along with it. So I think I think this kind of concept will always be up against 
that. I'm a big fan of a night out. If, I, yeah. if I'm going to spend money, I want to put on a dress. Yeah. I want to put on makeup. Yeah. And getting these, um, a lot of the meals to go from top restaurants, the price is often still the same. Mm-hmm. And yet you have to basically kind of cook it yourself yeah. at home. Yeah. <laughs> like I had that experience with Lucia, you know, I was like, oh, wow, this was $150 for this yeah. meal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm cooking the noodles in my yeah, crappy yeah, yeah. little pot and, on my crap and, no <laughs> and no one comes to brush the crumbs off. Yeah, the no, no. Like and it won't be as good. That's just right. the reality. The food can be made yeah. just as well, but there are other factors at play, like your yes. crappy pot that you're cooking <laughs> it in, you know? Yes. So who do you think could get away with this? Like, I think it's possible to maybe do this with barbecue. Yeah, 190 smoked meats. Mm-hmm. They are already mostly to go. They don't have a dine-in right. section, so that would work. I just imagine the Cadillac big rib just jammed into a vending machine <laughs> slot. You know, like it like skins itself when it comes out. It's really horrifying. I do think if it was Vivian Howard herself, because I do know that there are people like me here in Texas, if it was her food, I would buy it. Because otherwise, I will not get to eat her food. So That's true. Maybe if you have popular chefs from outside of Texas... And yeah. they put these in, and that's our only chance unless we're traveling to get this stuff. That might have a better a better chance. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of Vivian Howard's, you know, that Southern, even though we have a lot of cuisine here, I think we're missing a lot of that real Southern, you know, like fried collards or like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I want those collard greens. Yeah. I, I know to, you like your collard greens. I, lo- I love <laughs> collard greens, but I want to eat those collard greens. Thanks, guys. We'll hear more about Vivian's plans up next, and then we'll dive into all things soup. That's right after this. Central Market is really into food. Like, when we say cheese, it's in 12 languages into food. Butchers, bakers, and sushi roll makers into food. We're talking so obsessive about quality you can shop blindfolded into food. Central Market is really into food. If you are too, then let us turn your shopping list into a treasure map. Get inspired, get adventurous, or just get a chef-made dinner when you've got more taste buds than time. No place makes every meal more amazing like Central Market. Really into food. Shop now at centralmarket.com. Welcome back, everyone. We recently sat down with chef, cookbook author, and Emmy-winning TV host Vivian Howard, who owns multiple restaurants in North Carolina that focus on regional ingredients and Southern flavors. When the pandemic began, she launched Viv's Fridge, which is a smart refrigerator extension of her popular restaurant, Chef and the Farmer. Think high-end meals that are ready to take and bake or boil and toss. Hi, Vivian. So tell us a little bit about your vending machines. Well, you used a dirty word that we're trying to take out of our vocabulary. So, <laughs> no, but that is essentially what they are. Um, they are smart fridges that are essentially extensions of our kitchen at Chef and the Farmer. And all the food is prepared at Chef and the Farmer by our team. And then we, we load our fridges. We have three right now. Um, one on Baldhead Island, one on Emerald Isle, and one right in front of Chef and the Farmer. And they're 24-7. All you do is you go up and you swipe your card and the door opens. And it's like a giant mini bar inside in that everything is weighted. So when you pull something out and shut the door, you've essentially bought it. And there are meals and sides and snacks and desserts for uh, four people. Five years ago, I saw something called Farmer's Fridge in the Chicago O'Hare Airport. And it was a vending machine that had like healthy food in it, but everything was gone. So I was not able to try anything. And so that just kind of like piqued my interest. And then during the pandemic, when we were all, you know, at home cooking and cleaning and cooking and cleaning and cooking and cleaning, I thought, gosh, there's got to be a 
there's got to be a better way. That coupled with the idea of, you know, my restaurant uh, in this far out of the way place, Eastern North Carolina, when we had to close our doors, it was like, wow, I don't have anything except a great reputation right now. (laughs) And so how can I transform that reputation into more people being able to eat my food without having their butts in my seats in my restaurant? And so this was a like a big brainstorm of an idea and it's really working and we're getting ready to expand. And where do you plan to put them? Also any concerns that it might not work outside of the pandemic? The idea is that many of these fridges will be in kind of out of the way vacation destinations, places where there's a lot of affluent people, but not a lot of dining options. I think that the demand is really not fueled by the pandemic. It was Really, I think our habits kind of shifted during the pandemic or we gained new habits. We learned that we could heat something up from a restaurant and have a really delicious meal that is not quite takeout and not quite dine in. And so I think that the pandemic did open the door for us to be able to do things like this. But I think it's really um, what Viv's Fridge provides is that space between like I'm cooking a meal, I'm going out, I'm getting takeout. And then this is somewhere in between that. You can have a restaurant quality meal at your house with no dishes and no fuss. And it's really easy. What are you stocking them with? So some of the things we um, have in there are Chef and the Farmer favorites and some are are new things. Um, One of my favorite items are our braised short ribs of beef. So it's like four braised short ribs. They're braised in miso and apples. And they come with banana leaves that are stuffed with coconut rice grits. And then underneath those in the container is ginger, gingered cabbage. And so you just put that all in the oven. And once it's warm, you've got like this restaurant quality meal that, you know, you would have sworn I made for you because maybe I did. We also have our 10 layer chocolate cake, which is something that we've served at Chef and the Farmer forever. Uh, We have a late summer vegetable gratin that is baked in a Parmesan cream. We have a butter bean hummus bowl that comes with beet tzatziki and house-made pita. We have uh, blueberry barbecue chicken enchiladas. We have a taco kit that has adobo braised chicken, uh, pico, uh, refried field peas, uh, cilantro sour cream, house-made tortillas, like we're not cutting any corners and we're trying to think about, you know, what we would want to have in the fridge. Also making changes all, all along based on what people are purchasing. Yeah. So I love in your most recent cookbook, this will make it taste good that you talk about the flavor heroes. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what that means? Yes. So every chapter in this will make it taste good is about one of these flavor heroes. And you could also call them a condiment. So it's almost like cooking with a condiment. And I think that's something that, you know, we have been thinking about a lot recently with like chili garlic crisp or, um, you know, chimichurri, those kinds of things. So this is about like, I show you how to make this very useful um, condiment. And then I, in that chapter, I show you a whole bunch of ways to use it. So one of my favorite ones is called Red Weapons. And these are essentially like, 
pickled tomatoes that we have been using in the kitchen at Chef and the Farmer for years. And I can barely create a dish without them. Um, so at the beginning of the chapter, I explain what red weapons are. I teach you how to make it. And then later on in that chapter, I give you maybe 10 or 12 recipes to make with your red weapons. Another favorite of mine in there is called Little Green Dress. And um, Little Green Dress is basically like uh, a chimichurri and a salsa verde had a baby in a bed of olives. I named it Little Green Dress because, well, one, it's not a chimichurri and it's not, not a salsa verde, so I needed to give it a name. And that's one of the things that's so fun about this book is I can kind of create these things and give them personalities and names. And Little Green Dress is like that little black dress that kind of goes with everything and is right for every occasion. Oh, yeah. I'm a condiment queen myself. Me too. You could open my fridge and it's full, but it's all condiments. And so, Vivian, you're a working mom and really, really busy. So what are some of the things you do in the kitchen to feed your family? Basically, every Sunday, starting when school starts, I boil a whole chicken. And the plan is to use that for multiple meals. Uh, We usually make chicken and rice. To some, in some way. That's something that I make a lot. It's very easy if you already have the chicken and the broth. Um, and I like to make that for my family because my kids like it really simple, just the chicken and the rice and the broth. But I like to add maybe some red weapons, maybe some greens, something to make it more interesting. We eat a lot of like open faced. Uh, I, I like to take, you know, bread and pan fry it. And then I'll take a bunch of vegetables and maybe some ground turkey and saute that all up together. Maybe add one of my condiments, get it saucy, and then just spoon that on top of the toasted bread. And we eat it with a knife and fork. That doesn't sound very fancy, but it is very tasty. And I know the pandemic has been kind of hard for everyone in the restaurant business. What are some of the challenges that you face as a restaurateur these days? Our biggest challenge is and has always been, but it's the worst it's ever been now, is staffing. I don't know where all the people went, but, you know, we cannot fully staff our restaurants and it really prevents us from being able to, you know, charge forward with projects and things that we want to do. I think that the restaurant industry is in, we are going through a period of change. And I think in a decade, the landscape of what restaurants are out there and the way that we're dining will look very different. In my case, I closed Chef and the Farmer at the beginning of the summer so that we could open the fridges because, you know, we don't have that many people. And I really wanted to focus on the fridges and making sure and and seeing whether or not that was a viable concept. And when we reopen, we're going to reopen with a much different uh, format that involves much less service staff. Because again, you know, I've been beating my head against a wall for years trying to hire people and if that doesn't resolve itself, you've got to do something different. And do you see any of your fridges ever coming to Texas? Oh, definitely Texas. <laughs> yeah, My hope is to scale it so that it can work for restaurants like Chef and the Farmer, high-end cuisine, service-focused restaurants with chefs that have earned a stellar reputation. People that would normally expand and open a burger joint or a taco joint You can grow your revenue without expanding your footprint uh, with these fridges. So I I would like to scale it in that way, perhaps with a franchise model with other restaurateurs like myself. Thank you so much, Vivian. And you can keep up with Vivian as well on her website at VivianHoward.com. Stay with us. Coming up in our next segment, we'll be joined by food writer Nick Rallo as we dive into soup season. That's right after this. Hey, listeners, this is Christopher Wynn 
I'm the arts and entertainment editor for the Dallas Morning News. And that, thankfully, includes the food team that you're listening to right now. What I love about this beat is that food stories are people stories. Restaurants say a lot about who we are, our culture, and the health and well-being of our communities. If you want to help continue supporting this good work, it's easy. Just subscribe to the Dallas Morning News and become a member. You'll find a special offer just for listeners at dallasnews.com listen. Welcome back, everyone. It's been pretty chilly lately. So as George Costanza likes to say, we have all shifted into soup mode. Um, we're joined by food writer Nick Rallo today to talk all about soups. And we'll also talk with Hedda Dowd, owner of Rise on Lover's Lane, about the restaurant's famous marshmallow soup. So guys, what soups are you all cooking right now? Oh, cooking. Are we going to talk about soups we order? I, I mean, we go, can talk about that I first. I have to leave and come back. <laughs> you made hamburger helper thing, though. Hang and, on, wait, fact, that's not soup. Depending on how much cheese you use. It's well, in a bowl. Well, hang on. Before you, I was going to say poo-poo on this, but that's, that's a horrible thing to say. Good Friend Package actually had, it was written on the board, it said cheeseburger soup. So I, of course, had to ask. And it was basically hamburger helper with kind of an extra amount of sauce and tomatoes. So I was like, give me all of it because uh, I'm into that kind of thing. Was that just a special? A or is yeah, it was it... a special because they change them every yeah, day. Yeah. Always a fun place to stop in for soup. Good friend package. I like that it's also often very seasonal. While Dallas restaurants yeah. have some iconic soups that are always on the menu, a lot of times they get real creative with those. Claire, what about you? Last night I had Tom Ka Gai soup from Zap Kitchen, which is a favorite of mine. It's a go-to. It was really good. And instead of opting for the rice, the jasmine rice that it usually comes with, I subbed in glass noodles. Mm. Going to do that every time from now on. But that's one of my favorites. That's been kind of a, a go-to for me as it's getting colder. Especially yes. if it has a little spice in it, too. Oh, yeah. The more spice, the better. Yeah. <laughs> Dallas has a number of cold weather soups that can make your life immediately better. Oh, yeah. And the... Pozole at Avila's mm. it was actually on diners, drive-ins and dives, which is funny. It's been anointed by the frosted tip one, <laughs> but, uh, that means it's really good, Nick. <laughs> Isn't that he what blessed that means? It. Yes. His face was emblazoned on the restaurant. So the Pozole there is amazing. The, I just recently had the beef noodle soup at Hello Dumpling, oh, which yeah. if you lean into it and you get the aroma, it's like it immediately changes your day. And your skin. And yeah. your skin. <laughs> nice dewy skin. Yeah. For me, the quintessential winter soup is French onion soup. Yeah. Yes. Not good for your skin if you lean in, I don't think, <laughs> and possibly full of bread and cheese. But I think French onion soup is really special. We've mm. tried to make it at home a couple of times and it's fine, but it's like never like it is at a restaurant. And the r French onion soup at Brass Ram, Nick Badavinas's new restaurant in downtown Dallas, is over the top because mm. everything there is up and over. And this French onion soup is that too. It is just so wildly rich. And it's, you know, if you're supposed to stew those onions for however many hours, it seems like they've stewed them for days. What's yeah. your, is your go-to a, a cream soup or a broth? It's a choose your own adventure thing. Yeah. I love a broth soup. I love a cream soup. It, yeah. it depends on what we need that day. Okay, my go-to, especially if I haven't been feeling well, is the matzo ball soup at Cindy's Deli. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's a goodie. That'll make you feel better. I really love pozole, too. Um, mm. That is one of my go-to soups at restaurants and at home that I like to make. Um, but I really love the one at Mezomaya. Yes, and I, I remember um, the chef there shared his recipe with us a while back, and people went nuts over that. Like, that mm. is a really popular soup at a really popular restaurant. It just has the right amount of spice. 
and it's just so warm and comforting. Pozole is also genius because it's an interactive soup depending on where you go, because they give you the little charcuterie of all the toppings and stuff, like the diced radish, the Mexican oregano. It's a fun interactive soup. (laughs) Well, it's kind of like chicken tortilla soup, too. That's a, you know, that's one we kind of do at home. And I let my son take the tortilla chips and crunch them all up. Yes. You know, he basically eats the soup like a dip. Like, that's all. (laughs) (laughs) You know who's a boss-ass chicken tortilla soup? Is Chewy's, surprisingly. That's... We are big tortilla soup makers in our house. Oh. Yeah. And my husband makes a really good version that's based off of Rick Bayless's recipe. Rick Bayless is a chef that has some restaurants in Chicago and I'm sure other places as well. And he has Frontera Grill. And if you've never been to Frontera Grill, but you've been in like the Tex-Mex aisle of the grocery store, they also have Frontera Grill branded stuff in there, like enchilada sauce and stuff. And it's all pretty good. But there's a really good recipe. His recipe is called Sopa Azteca. Basically, you take some dried chilies and some tomatoes in their juice, cook them for a little bit, and then pulverize it in the blender. So the base of this broth is thick tomato-y sauce instead of a clear broth which is a strong preference when it comes to tortilla soup for me. We serve it like you're building your own pizza. So we have slices of avocado. We have little dices of Monterey Jack cheese. We have strong feelings about how the tortilla chips go on it. Like my husband will take a handful and just crush it. And then like those are on the top of the thing. And then he leaves them on top and like spoons, like pieces. I would like to like Aaron's son like a child, perhaps, <laughs> I would like to take a tortilla chip and when I want to take some scoops and then otherwise use my spoon with no tortilla chips in it. Right. But this is a really good soup to make for a group because it's not super spicy. It has incredible depth of flavor. If you're coming to our house in Texas, we're sort of proud to make Texas food. This feels like a very Texas soup. You know, then there's a story about how Dean Fearing made tortilla soup at the mansion famous right. when I think this wasn't a fancy soup for so long. And I just, um, whether it's Cold or hot, we eat tortilla soup all the time. I love tortilla soup. Another popular soup that I had growing up, like I have family from Louisiana, gumbo was always big. Oh, yeah. That's technically a soup, right? Of course. Yeah. Is that in chili territory? Well, I was going to ask, is chili a soup or a stew? I don't know. It's like a hot dog as a sandwich. It gets its own category. I think chili gets its own category. Chili is its own category. But I do think for me, gumbo is a soup. I feel like the rule should be like the Dairy Queen rule. Like if you can turn it upside down and it doesn't fall out. It's a, it's a stew. It's a what? It's, <laughs> what a, doesn't fall not, it's an ice cream cone. <laughs> it's not a liquid. Please don't dump a whole vat of gumbo on your head. That's a terrible way to check your soup, by the way, <laughs> listeners. It's not recommended. <laughs> yeah, but my family would make gumbo in a huge vat on the stove with the shrimp tails and the sausage, and it would just smell up the whole house. Soup really needs like just layers of that flavor to really build. Like if you just make a quick soup, it could be good, but it's not really going to have the depth of flavor as if you simmered it all night. I have a good example of a soup you can make after work Mm -hmm. and it's really delicious and doesn't take like all day. So a regular in our house is wild mushroom and orzo soup with Italian meatballs. And it's from a book called 300 Sensational Soups. So if anybody really likes soups like I do, you should buy this. For anybody listening, you can Google wild mushroom and orzo soup with Italian meatballs and find it on the Seattle Times website. But I'm always a fan of buying the cookbook if you want it. But um, this is basically, it's an orzo soup in beef broth. And then it tells you to make some Italian meatballs. We prefer to take 
ground pork and just put that in there instead of rolling little tiny meatballs. Cause we were taught in the class to roll meatballs the size of like a marble mm-hmm. so that each can fit on a spoon. It's far too small. Which is, yeah, <laughs> it's so small and makes more sense with each bite to mm-hmm. get one, but is also, I mean, you end up making like 100 tiny meatballs. Oh, yeah. It looks like some sort of weird paintball game. It's, yeah. <laughs> yes. Just out of the blue, meatball we were like, soup. what happens if we just like, Throw I don't know, each other. put the meat in there and cook it in there. And we cut back on the meat a little bit so that you don't have like such a meaty thing, you know, because this is one of those soups that has broth and you want that broth. So then you cook orzo separately, you add it at the end and you do not put these two things together forever. Because if you put the orzo in with the soup overnight, what you have is no more liquid. You have yeah. the fattest yeah. orzos in the world. And then you're like, oh, I don't have soup anymore. You could um, definitely turn that upside down over your head. <laughs> yeah, you could. Yeah, there's a Dairy Queen rule here. Yeah. Um, but it is such a good soup. It is not complicated for anybody who's not a serious cook mm. and you know a little bit of shredded parmesan cheese grated parmesan cheese whatever you have over top the second that the weather gets like a tiny bit cold this is the first soup we make yeah i just love it that's awesome yeah, that sounds a little bit like the comfort soup for me my parents would do the classic italian wedding soup mm-hmm. and of course the meatballs gradually got larger as we got older i think they <laughs> also we love meatballs and i do love italian wedding soup yeah yeah there is something about the tiny meatballs that i actually love (laughs) they're cute um so they're really cute and i think when i first got my own apartment and really i think the only thing that i ate were like canned peas and strange choice of all the things i love peas that's like a that's like an old so good person that lives on a train in a cartoon do you still like i've grown a lot um i do love peas i don't really buy canned peas and just eat them out of a bowl like i used to did you slice one pea at a time no i just use a lot of butter and salt (laughs) and pepper and spoon or fork it depends Oh, no, it doesn't. It depends. <laughs> spoon. Spoon. Yeah, for sure. I think with those, it was it was spoon. It was oh, that was a good side story, Aaron. <laughs> anyway, really great. Anyway, sorry. So I love so I love the canned peas, but I also would eat a lot of canned soups. And I think there was like a Progresso or I don't know what brand it was, but they had an Italian wedding meatball soup. I loved that freaking soup. One of my favorite go-tos. Uh, for making soup at home is Allison Roman's chicken and dumpling soup. Mm. It is so good. And you make it in an hour and a half, two hours, and it tastes like a soup that you've been making all day. I'm going to try that. Yeah. It's so good. Growing up, what was your, was there a default soup that was like as a kid that you had all the time? You know, my mom, she would make split pea soup. Oh, yeah. <gasps> split pea. Mine too. Which now thinking back to it, like I'm amazed that she would make it and that we would love it. Like that she got us to eat it because that can be a, that can be a scary soup. Oh yeah. I'm still feeling it's so it's a scary green. soup. Yeah. You know, the color's not good. Like, the did you see the ham, exorcist? <laughs> you know. I mean, yeah. Wasn't that split point. pea soup? It was. We, we ate split pea soup also in my home in the 80s and 90s and I don't like that soup. I lived in California for a bit and on the way to camping in Big Sur, we used to stop at Pea Soup Anderson's, which is a real restaurant in Bealton, California, that claims to be the home of split pea soup. No! And of course, when you see the sign for Pea Soup Anderson's and see that it's the home of split pea soup, you have to stop and try it. <laughs> the name Peel sounds like a joke. Road. It, it, it really does. Pea Soup Anderson's. But they are incredibly sincere and serious about their pea soup. So much so that when we walked in, it was like a weird David Lynch dream. 
where it was like time had frozen from the 50s sort of thing. When you order the pea soup, they bring it out as though it's like the invasion of the body snatchers where they're like, this is the soup that will change you into one of us. It's very weird. What happens place, if you don't you have order to it? stop there. I, <laughs> I think you're removed from the restaurant yeah. immediately. So speaking of great local soups, Rise Restaurant on Lover's Lane is a longtime souffle restaurant, but one of their most popular dishes is the marshmallow soup. Here's Rise owner Hedda Dow to tell us more about the soup. I think people's reaction is all because of the name. It doesn't matter if it's 104 outside or freezing outside. 365 days minus the five days that were closed of the year, it works. And people will tell you, I have to have it. It's a tomato carrot bisque, and it's made fresh daily. And we make our own pesto. We don't use pine nuts, which most pesto is. We use pecans. So we drizzle that so you see that lovely green contrasting the color of the tomato carrot. Then we plop the three goat cheese souffles inside that bob up and down just like marshmallows. And that color of the green against the white against the orange. It's just such a beautiful presentation. Thanks, everyone. And that's all the time we have for Eat Drink DFW this week. Thank you all for joining, and I hope we've made you hungry for more. We also want to hear from you, so share your soup thoughts, favorite restaurants, or tasty recipes with us at eatdrink at dallasnews.com. The show is produced by Julie Fisk. To stay up to date on every episode of this show and hear more from our newsroom, just follow the Dallas Morning News wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please rate the show and give us a good review. Find links to everything we do at dallasnews.com slash listen. You'll also find a special membership offer there just for listeners. For the news, I'm Erin Bookie. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Eat Drink DFW from the Dallas Morning News is made possible by Central Market.